I love this whole concept. Which part? That we, that we just have a conversation. I know, right? <laughs> My friend Hannah joins me today on this episode. She is a trauma therapist, so we talk a lot about trauma and therapy, and interestingly enough, climbing. Basically how everything comes back to climbing and how climbing parallels life and relationships. She also tells us a story about her foray into world championship obstacle course racing. So give it a listen to hear more about Hannah. When you think of yourself, how, how would you describe yourself, whether that's in a title of your job or just you as a person? That's a good question. I think that, you know, it's so interesting how people define themselves by their jobs in so many ways. Yeah. And I think that it's really hard to separate myself from the work that I do into two, two separate entities, because I think that the way I live my life and also the work that I do are so intertwined and working with people and doing work on their trauma or anxiety or helping them to live in a more centered way, in a more whole way with their life experiences, with the stuff that's going on in their world. I also have to be doing the same in my own life in order to connect the two. And so I think that really what I do is, is help people to connect with themselves, with their own body. And, and then I also do that work myself all the time so that I can do my work. So making sure that I'm doing, eating well and doing the things that I love, yoga and rock climbing and being outside, doing art, and then helping my clients to find that part of themselves if they've kind of lost track of it. I think we can get so caught up in our lives or things that are going on that we're unhappy about or focused on or traumas in our, our world that is really hard to stay focused on what we need to do for self-care, what we need to do to center ourselves. And when I work with people, I really, we do a lot of work at the start and the end of a session to connect back to the present moment, the space that they're in and their present life, because we do go you know, in trauma work, we do go back in time to sort of traumas that people have experienced or things that they're carrying in the present that relates to the past. So we do a lot of work on that. Um, so how I define myself, I do, I am a clinical social worker. Um, so a psychotherapist and I do work predominantly um, with adults and with couples on anxiety, on depression and trauma. And then also I work full-time in a school. So I work with elementary students and that that's a lot of working on self-regulation and emotion, expressing emotions, learning how to connect with peers, that sort of thing. 
who the two live really well together because they're kind of on the opposite sides of the spectrum Mm -hmm. sort of really young children and then then adults and I like that I like I really have to be more creative in order to do that switching gears between the two things yeah that makes sense so it sounds like your your own embodiment practice is really important to you showing up for your clients too Mm -hmm. right so if I'm not in if I'm not in a great space in order to sit with someone and hold space for them, I, I feel like I'm, I'm not as good of a therapist in that time. That being said, we all have tough days yeah. and we can only be as present as we can be. And sometimes if there's something, if I'm just off, I, I sometimes will just put that out there to my client. You know, I'm a little off today. Yeah. We'll work together on it, you know, just so that they know I might not be exactly how I normally am. And I think that that's kind of a good example to the people I work with that I'm not, I'm not saying I have all the answers. They're the ones who have, they're the ones that are coming to the conclusions themselves Mm -hmm. about their own internal world and their, their own life experiences. And I'm just there, you know, I'm, I'm there as a guide. But that transparency is important to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like that also sort of builds trust in the relationship? For sure. And I think if we go back to sort of the two worlds, I'm really transparent in my life. Yeah. So if I'm having a bad day and I go to see a friend, I also tell the, you know, yeah. like, hey, I'm in a terrible mood today. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> you know, I showed up or you know, if it's one of those days where you can't show up, like I'm having a really tough day and I can't show up, I can't be present. I need to go and do my own stuff. Yeah. I used to, it's interesting going through challenging times in the past. I always thought during those times, like, oh, I have to be in the present moment and observe, you know, doing all these things to stay in the present. And then one day I, you know, I felt like I had this huge epiphany because really that's, we're always, that's all we really have. Even if we're having a great day, we can be in the present moment. That's, that's all we can do. And we do spend a lot of time living in the past and living in the future. So it's, we can miss what's going on right now. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I think it's also a part of getting to know ourselves right? And just getting to understand our boundaries and our limits and just feeling more comfortable with being who we authentically are and letting that be okay. Mm -hmm. I actually found it the most profound when I tell a child that. Oh, that's so sweet. So just saying like, hey, I'm really, you know, I'm really having a tough day. Yeah. I'm here, we're meeting, but I just want you to know that that I'm having a, a, a bad day today. I'm not feeling like myself. And to be like that for a child, I think is a huge thing. Especially, yeah. especially I really encourage parents when they make mistakes, yeah. to tell, you know, to tell children about it. Not necessarily, you know, a child can only, will only ask questions as much as they can handle. So they're sort of developmentally ready for. And if you kind of stick within that framework, 
but but just saying you know like a parent who got angry at their kid and then they're feeling guilty about it it's okay to say to the child like I got more angry than I needed to yeah you know your mom's having a tough day today it can be really powerful yeah well it also models permission for them to feel how they need to feel right 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 so you work with um you work with the kids mostly at in school mm-hmm. right and then your private practices adults yeah i do have a few children that i see with fam you know in their families or individually mm-hmm. but because i work with students sort of nine to five i decided to mostly see adults when i'm when i'm not there to have that balance because I don't want to get to the point where I sort of don't have enough energy to do both things and both things are really important to me. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of- and you mentioned that the mind body connection is important to you and that you use that in the practice. What does that look like for you? So particularly, so with, with children, it's a lot of, um, self-regulation so having them realize that their body is sort of out of control Mm. um and then finding ways to calm themselves or not calm themselves if they need to really move to know that they need to really move with adults sometimes the practice is so if we're doing some real trauma work that feels really heavy I always start the session with a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice. And it it may only be five, 10 minutes, but really myself and my client really grounding, putting our feet on the floor, really feeling our presence. And now it's through Zoom. So it's sort of a different, it's a different, whole, whole different thing. But in the room, like we're here in the room together, noticing our feet on the floor, that type of thing. And then it might be some sort of guided relaxation, muscle relaxation, or a visualization. I usually talk through a visualization with clients before doing it so that they can kind of have some idea what it'll be like, because that can also feel kind of scary to some people. Mm -hmm. So kind of really thinking about what would be soothing to you not what would be soothing to me, but what would be soothing to you? Mm -hmm. You know, some people like the beach is very soothing. Other people maybe had something happen at the beach that was scary. So you don't want to go to the beach. So really thinking about where they would like to be, what kind of senses they might like to feel there. And then I, I walk them through that, talk them through that. And that's just a nice way to both start and end the session. And then often what I do is encourage people to do that on their own between sessions. So if something resonated with them and everyone, everyone has a different experience. So one thing might not really do much for them. And then we find something they resonate with. Then I encourage them to try to do that in their own, in their own time, in their own space. So how did the embodiment work come into your life? Is that something that you've always done or was it something that as you were becoming a therapist, you sort of got involved in? How did that show up for you? 
for myself, I've always been attracted to being out in nature and movement. And so I think that it, it, it came very holistically along with, as I was sort of leaving my own life, doing things for my own body, that when I started to do therapy, the first place I worked was a residential treatment center. And I had a lot of freedom there. So I could take my clients for walks or there was a barn there and we would go and interact with the animals and talk there. Mm -hmm. And so anytime that I saw that my client was getting overwhelmed within their body, I would, I would start to sort of create space for them to do their own self-regulation. And I, I would say that a lot of that came from my own, own learning throughout life on how to do that and then I did when I went and got certified to do trauma work then I also went and did a mind-body training and certification so in that I learned about a lot of different modalities but I had done quite a bit of meditation in college so that one really you know resonates with me and I found it really useful to me in the past and so I I do that in very small amounts during therapy time yeah that feels very relatable to me too in ways when you were talking about when you were talking about being active and using your body I have a past with a lot of physical activity and I feel like that was when I was more physically capable I was definitely embodying my feelings in a different way and getting them out by movement Um, but not I don't think I was super aware that I was doing it at the time Um, but as I look back now I can I can see how how that was happening and then now it's a, you know, it's a active thing that I do, but um, I know we both have a past with rock climbing. Mm-hmm. So is that one of those, like I found rock climbing to be so meditative. Is that, what's your experience with that? So the first time I went climbing, I, I decided to get trained to be an outward bound instructor. And it was a 55 day course. So I was off to North Carolina for 55 days. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at the program, there was canoeing and hiking and we were gonna get trained as wilderness first responders and all of that. And I saw the climbing section and I'd never climbed. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I thought I wasn't gonna like it. honestly I thought like it's only a few days so I don't you know I'll I'll get through it yeah and then the first day we went we went to this climbing area and it was they divided us up by gender so women went with the female instructor and men went with the male instructor Mm -hmm. and we came to this place where it's sort of there was a little bit of a a lip on the climb. So it was sort of a flat climb, a face climb. And I did that and that was sort of easy. And then these more experienced people in the group who had climbed before were all trying this hard thing and falling off of it. 
and that is where the part of me that really loves that sort of challenge <laughs> i i said i think i i think i'd like to try that <laughs> and then i climbed right over it and went right up the rock and my teacher my teacher said something about you really need to think about how you frame it because it, you were sort of approaching it as you aren't going to be able to do it and instead probably you knew you were going to be able to do it and you wanted to do it and you were going to do it and there was something about it even though you had never done it before that you thought i, I know i can do that mm -hmm. and so she really framed the afternoon's lesson around if you know you can do something even if you have no valid reason to know you can do it it's okay to just say I, i'm going to be able to do that i'm excited about it yeah and go for it you know and so that was sort of the next day i climbed a multi-pitch and i got stuck it was on table rock mountain in north carolina and yeah. i got stuck in this place where you know in retrospect it was probably like a five seven or five eight you know yeah. and i were i i couldn't see the person in front of me i could not see the person below me and i was just on the rock face all by myself mm -hmm. and i was stuck and i didn't know if i could do it and then i did it and I, that was it like, that <laughs> yeah. was the cool that was the coolest thing i've ever done i mean it was yeah it was just really i think what what happens on the rock face is really what happens in our life but it happens so much quicker yeah like, here's this thing, I have to make a decision where to go. And then I have to believe in myself that I can do it, even though part of me doesn't think it's possible. But yet I know it's possible. And just that balance and just, you have to be totally present. You're definitely oh, yeah. not thinking about the future or what happened or what you had for lunch. Yeah. You're really <laughs> right there on the rock. And I once wrote, so I once wrote an article about this, it, which never got published, but um, there's a column called Modern Love in the New York Times. And so I wrote a whole essay basically about this and a relationship that I had with a climber and just about how I think there's so many parallels between rock climbing and relationships in that both people have to be willing to climb. Like if your rock climbing partner decides they aren't climbing <laughs> and they're stuck, you really can't help them. Yeah. You can't go give them yeah. a boost. You can encourage them like we can in a relationship. Yeah. But the but the truth is both of you have to climb in order to continue up the rock. Or both of you have to descend. Or yeah. both of you have to stop and have lunch. <laughs> I mean, you have to kind of be on the same page. And so many times, I think as someone who who works with people and has always, I've always sort of been a therapist even before I was a therapist. Uh -huh. I always see the best in people and I always believe that people can do anything. But the truth of the matter is the person themselves has to believe that. And in relationships, it's really easy to go, I know we can do this. But if two people aren't doing that at the same time, you really can't. Yeah. You know, that's sort of the truth of the matter. Um, 
So I just think there's so many, there's so many parallels with, with just our life experience. I totally agree. I think rock climbing is, it's like endless parallels to, to life. I, I wrote a article one time called rock climbing is, wait, what was it called? Oh, rock climbing and brushing your teeth are basically the same thing. <laughs> I love it. And it's, yeah, it really is a lot about that because it's like the courage that you have to have and then the discipline and then the strength and then the beliefs in yourself. But in particular, yeah, that bond that is, that is created between climbing partners is so intense because you're also putting so much trust into this person. So you're like building a relationship on the trust and the partnership of literally holding each other's life in your hands, in each other's hands. And yeah, I like the parallel to a relationship because it is so similar. And that that's similar, the communication that has to happen while you're climbing with someone too. And some of it is verbal communication. And a lot of it is like communicating via the rope, you know, felt sense. So just being really intuitive and um, paying attention to detail and, and being patient. Right. I had an experience once where I got up to um, a belay ledge and I was clipped and safe, but some part of me was sort of stuck. And so when I leaned back, it looked like something popped off. Oof. So for a split second, so it was sort of like one quick draw was like hooked to something and then popped yeah. off, but yeah. that had nothing to do with my safety system. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. having been trained with outward bound, I check everything so thoroughly, you know, sure. I have all that down, very well down, but mm -hmm. regardless for that one second, yeah. I felt like I was falling. Yeah. And I remember after that, we sort of got to the top, we had one more pitch to go. And then I just said, I'm like, I'm done for the day. And I remember thinking it was so nice to have my climbing partner just go, yes, of course you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the reality is I started climbing, you know, I went back to climbing the next day and it was great, Yeah. but it was knowing myself that I just needed to be done and go for a hike. And yeah, it wasn't a real emergency. It wasn't a real fear but it was based you know for that moment I felt like I was falling so just yeah being able to know myself that much that sort of forcing it could have you know ended in a teary day of climbing or yeah. <laughs> like a total meltdown just yeah. being stuck on the rock I just knew that my head was not there yeah and that's so much Again, I mean, there's so many parallels because you just can't, we can't always be present. We need to know when we just need to be alone or be in the woods or whatever our, be eating our favorite food, whatever our coping skills are, when we need it, just being able to know that we're done, that we've had enough. I think that's a lifelong skill too. And your needs change depending on your situation and as you learn more about yourself. And as someone who 
works with nonviolent communication, that was such a pivotal moment for me to grasp the support of being able to connect to my feelings and needs and really use those to help me see where my boundaries are and see what is important to me and how to take care of myself better and like better self-care for someone with chronic illness too. Um, those, when you have a chronic illness or you're supporting any sort of health condition, that's so essential to get really familiar with where your boundaries are and, and what's comfortable with you. And, and I love how you were saying that, you know, that moment on the rock was, was your moment to, when you knew that was like, that was your standstill for the day. That was where you needed to be done. I've had a lot of interesting moments in climbing and I honestly had no idea this, we would go into so much of climbing, but I could talk about it all day, <laughs> but I don't know um, if everyone else wants to, but I could, like we could do a whole nother episode about climbing. I feel like, but yeah, I, I feel like I learned so much from climbing, but I also wasn't as, when I was climbing, I was still in more of a goal-oriented mode, I guess. How many climbs am I doing? How hard are they? Stuff like that. But I love that you spent time in North Carolina too, because I lived in North Carolina for almost six years. And okay. I, know, I know the mountain that you're talking about too. I haven't climbed there, but I have hiked around there. One of the coolest parts actually was that when we started our course, we hiked 12 miles, not, not 12 miles. We hiked for 12 days and oh, we wow. ended up on the top of the mountain. Yeah. And then people were climbing over the edge in uh -huh. their climbing shoes and they had their climbing shoes on. And I remember they had purple mythos on very distinctively uh -huh. <laughs> and they came over the edge. And I thought to myself, that's crazy. <laughs> They just came up the side of the rock and we hiked all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> and then probably three days later, I was coming over the top of it. Yeah. You know, I mean. Yeah. And my former self three days earlier would have thought that was insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. That was really, it was really cool to then be there again myself. It just felt so incredible. And when I had, so I had hip surgery and at the time my surgeon said way after that, many years later, but the time my surgeon said, I can't be sure that you can, like, if you don't get the surgery, you may not be able to climb or do yoga, two things that are important to you. Mm -hmm. Also the surgery might not work and you might not be able to do those things. I can't promise that you can do those things just because you have the surgery. And so when I came back from the surgery and could climb again, I just had so much more of a deeper appreciation for just climbing without any goal. Like you were talking about, it was very goal centered. Mm -hmm. It really became like, if I went for the day and climbed three routes and just was outside and had a wonderful time with my friends and that mm -hmm. bond and, I got to be on the rock and climb. I, I was ecstatic. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it just, it, the whole climbing itself became a different thing. Yeah.
I just thought that was really cool too. That sort of my approach to it became so different too. A hundred percent. I think that that's so common after injuries or health conditions or anything like that too, because you sort of approach things with a different intention and the intention is really just gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so if I was, if I was physically able to climb now or whenever I am able to, again, it will be such a different experience for me. Even, uh, I mean, anything climbing or biking or, um, you know, any of the activities that dance that I would get back to it's, or even just hiking, you know, even just going for walks for me is such a different experience when I was, than when I was healthy. Yeah. I, I just understand more how magical it is. Right. Tell me more about the hip injury. Like how, how do you think that that changed your life? So I probably had the injury for about two years before I got it fixed. And part of that was because I went through this crazy medical system of, I was in a car accident. And when I said that I was having shooting pain, like I was being stabbed by a knife in my hip, I was told that I was just really sore because I was in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And I tried to explain to them that I was an athlete and that I have a pretty high pain tolerance. So I'm not just sort of like complaining that I'm sore. I was sort of looked at like, I felt like some of the doctors looked at me as if I was just complaining about soreness. And so about a year went by and then a family friend who's a surgeon, I told him my symptoms and he told me my exact injury mm. at a non-med, you know, we were just hanging out, yeah, like having a cookout basically. Uh -huh. <laughs> he just diagnosed me and said, you need to go to this particular surgeon in Boston. And then I went to him and he said, yeah, that's what you've got. So I had torn my labrum. Um, and then it took me a while to be sure I'd never had anesthesia before. And mm. that felt pretty intimidating to me. And yeah. it's considered elective surgery. And mm. so I had to kind of ponder that. When they got in there, there was also a torn ligament. But I will say that I'm very happy that I did do it in the end, so you can get arthritis either way without doing it, with doing it, all these things. But I, I was able to get back to some of the things that I loved and that was you know, really big. But I also learned during that process that if I hadn't been able to, I would have had new things. Yeah. I would have found new things that really made me happy. Mm -hmm. I didn't, and, and since, you know, since that surgery, I, for a couple of years, I was obstacle course racing and I ended up competing in the world championships for obstacle course racing. Wait, what? Yes. <laughs> Hold on. I feel like I need to know more about this. So I went, so I was injured uh, with a different injury. So I'd had the hip surgery a number of years ago and by then I hurt my ankle just doing something dumb at the climbing gym. Okay. Um, and I had a bad sprained ankle, which typically takes me about a year if I get a bad sprained ankle to really heal it properly. And so a friend of mine invited me to go to Hawaii with him 
And I figured there's nothing wrong with going to Hawaii. Okay, let's do that. And so off I went to Hawaii and he was competing in a Spartan race. And so I had a, a cast, a, like a little brace on and I decided to volunteer the first day. And then the second day they said I could race for free. So I said, okay, well maybe I'll just do it, but walk. So then I did that. And then a few weeks later, I, I decided to do, actually run the race because it was so fun. How did you get from that to almost world championships? <laughs> so the world championships you can earn by coming in at the time, I think you had to come in top 10 in, in a race before the world championships, uh -huh. um, which is a separate organization, the obstacle course racing world championships. So you can qualify in a bunch of different obstacle races. And I was running a race and at the start in, in Vermont, and I was running in this race. And at the start, I kind of eyed up the other competitors and, and figured out who I thought was gonna win. And then I realized about halfway through the race that I hadn't seen any of them, which meant they were behind me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at one point I just thought to myself, I guess I better just speed up because I might actually be doing pretty good. <laughs> and when I finished, I had come in sixth place, female. And so, you know, then I found out from my friend who was waiting at the finish line who almost missed it because he was, he had run the day before and he was having a beer up the mountain. And then he suddenly saw me go by and he was like, you're way too early. I wasn't expecting you. But I just had, it was just one of those days where I just, I don't know, everything fell into place. Yeah. And so we went to, we went to Canada and competed in that. It was 14 miles with 46 crazy obstacles. Wow. And it was just, every time I did one, and I don't know if I'll ever do one again or not, but every time I did one, it was just such an adventure. I never looked at the map first, so I had no idea what was coming. I just came around a corner and there would be some obstacle and I had to figure it out. Wow. And I just, yeah. <laughs> I love a challenge. I love, I love that, mo you know, being outside your comfort zone, which is very much what Outward Bound is built upon and yeah. trying to solve a problem. I think that like creative way, like how do I get my body to get through this thing? Yeah. Do I jump, do I, and then you have that moment of what if I fall? Yeah. Okay, what if I do? What if I do fall? then I get up and keep going, you know? And I, and it's again, it's such a parallel to life is that we really, we have so many opportunities like that. I mean, that's why I decided to do this, right? I'd never done a podcast before. <laughs> I never, and I said, why not? This sounds like it would be really fun. And also, you know, a little intimidating yeah. and different, but why not? Yeah, you mentioned that when we were talking before about um, kind of taking on challenges that seem interesting to you. And you told me a story about the story slam. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Because I, I think it's a good story. A few years ago, I was single and dating and I was invited to a story slam and so I went and 
the person I was with was very, I guess this was his thing. So he was very experienced with doing story slams. And so he was very excited to sort of have that be a place where maybe he could show off one of his skills on a date. (laughs) (laughs) And the theme of the night was without a net. And so the woman came by, and I didn't know this when I said I would go on this date, but the people who were in the story slam were just people in the audience. And so this woman kept coming by and saying, do you want to put your name in the hat? We're going to pull 10 names out. And the first time she came by, I thought, no, I don't really need to. But then she, (laughs) she sort of gave me the form and left it. And then I sat there sitting and thinking and thought, I probably should just put my name in there. What is it going to hurt? And again, this could be really crazy and scary, but I mean, why not? So I put my name in and nine people went and then the last name called was mine. (laughs) So I stood up on the stage and I told everyone that it was my first time ever. And so I got a big, you know, bunch of people cheering, which was great. And then I felt like I could just tell my story. And so I told this story about dog sledding. I went on this, my mom had told my father that she really would like to go dog sledding. And what I think she imagined was really going with my dad on a romantic ride in a dog sled. But instead for Christmas, my dad gave us an overnight dog sledding trip. My mom and I, he didn't come. (laughs) (laughs) So we got there and there were three sleds and two instructors and they put my mom in a sled and they were very worried because she was older and they imagined her to be very frail. My mother's very active and she was like, she was very nervous, but she was, she was there. She had read all the lists. She'd gotten us the down booties. She felt like we were going to stay warm. And so they put her in the sled and then they turned to me and said, so we need you to drive this one. You need to steer this one. And there's just a little wooden bar and I had to stand on it and wrap the rope around my hand. And they said, if you fall off, don't let go because we'll lose the sled with your mother in it. No no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. So off we went and we came down this hill and my foot for a second came off Mm. and I had to jump back on. And then, you know, the dog was following the other dogs. I didn't really have to steer. I just had to Mm -hmm. kind of hold on basically I mean I think the dog probably would have followed along with everyone else Mm -hmm. but it was yeah it was definitely an interesting adventure because my mother was happily sitting in the in the sled enjoying herself and and I was the one that was without a net as as the theme of the night went yeah so okay that's cool. I hadn't heard that story. Where was that? Was that in Massachusetts? Are you from Massachusetts originally? Oh, the dog sledding was in Maine. Oh, okay. Are you from Maine or are you from Mass? I'm originally from Rhode Island, so but oh, I've been either. in Massachusetts since I went to college. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Because you went to Boston College? I went to Wheaton College undergrad and then BC School of Social Work for grad school. Okay that story just another example of kind of putting myself in a position that was uncomfortable but not so uncomfortable that 
I was going to pass out or something. <laughs> Just it it feels it feels really good to do that. Yeah, it sounds like you like to kind of push the envelope a little bit, like see a challenge and recognize that it's doable, but it might push some limits, push some boundaries for you. And then there's something exciting in that for you. I feel like not to bring everything back to climbing, but really, um, I also feel like that a lot of climbers have that because I feel like you sort of need to have that type of an attitude to want to do something like that. There are risks, but it's also perceived as more, I think, more risky than it, it is or needs to be because there are if you know what you're doing and you know the safety protocols there's still risk right a rock could fall yeah. on your head or fall yeah. off the face but there's also a lot that we know about how to be safe yeah mm -hmm. yeah definitely unless you're free climbing solo climbing like el capitan and then you're just crazy right well right. <laughs> that's that's never gonna happen and as i I mean, even just as I think about it, sort of my quote unquote, bigger climb, you know, I may not do any huge climbs going forward, or I might, I don't feel, I don't feel like I have to hold on to a certain expectation. Yeah. If some opportunity comes up, I, I've been fortunate that I've been able to climb all around the country. I've climbed, I went on a trip and climbed in Spain at one point in Portugal. Mm. Um, but also I'm happy to climb a rock down the street <laughs> exactly. or just be with people who are climbing and yeah it's totally. a different community it's a different type of experience yeah we talked about that a little bit before the uh how amazing the climbing community is yep it's definitely a, a really sweet community well and one of the things that I was thinking while we were talking about the climbing or about that story slam I did. Yeah. That's what I love about my work is that every time I have a new client, it's a new, it's a new fresh experience. And I get really excited about needing to think about things differently every time and creatively. And maybe there might be something that comes up for someone that I think, oh, I'm not really sure what the best thing for this person is. And then I do a lot of problem solving and also listening to the person and what they're telling me they need. And being able to do that is, it's as part of my work to do, be creative in that way, I think is really good. Like I often take couples who are super challenging. They might be referred to me with sort of a caveat of this is going to be really hard and my attitude is great let's go <laughs> i'm excited yeah i can see that 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 makes sense to me that 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 challenge would be welcomed yep i mean I, you can't do that all the time you wouldn't want when doing trauma work you wouldn't want to it's very hard to do sort of see if everyone has you're seeing has had like really traumatic experiences mm -hmm. recently, that is, I think, not the right balance. It's finding that mm -hmm. right balance. I see. Yeah. You know, some of my students at school have very basic things going on. 
they're sad because their parents are getting divorced or Mm -hmm. they're just having a bad day and they're need a little support. And that's important for the balance of the work that I do. Doesn't make that experience any less important helping that child, but just having that to counterbalance maybe a challenging night the night before with an adult client or whatever. Yeah. Paying attention to your own self-care too and like how much you can handle and where you need to space things out just to keep yourself feeling good. Yes. And having the energy. I don't ever want to get to the place where I go, oh, I don't want to go to work today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a terrible feeling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to not feel that again as I come into my new life as a life coach because that's part of why I'm doing it is because I want to be really excited about my work. Well, and just an amazing feeling to have found that for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do for your own self-care around that so that you don't get burnt out? So one thing that I've done over the years is kind of have a list of the, th- I don't have an actual physical list anymore. Mm-hmm. but of all the things that I know make me feel better. So I feel like I have a toolbox mm-hmm. and then and not feeling too tied to one thing. So for me, and some people like a schedule. So I do this for self-care Monday, I do this for self-care Tuesday. For me, that feels too constricting and then I'm going to fight against it and maybe not do it at all. So instead I often have sort of in non-COVID times, I have supplies in my bag that I can do a multiple multitude of things. So I might have my climbing gear in my bag. I can go to the gym or have yoga clothes. Oh, I like to always have my journal. So sometimes I want to just go and read and write at a cafe or at the library or have a book that I like to read. I also make pottery and So typically I have a class, but I haven't gone since the pandemic started, but typically I go to a class on Tuesdays, but then they're also open studios at night sometimes. So often on my calendar, I'll write options like this Mm -hmm. yoga class at five, pottery at 630. And then I always have the option to go home and eat a snack and watch a movie, go for a walk. Yeah. So I try not to be too rigid in my options. Mm-hmm. Just know that I have a lot of options. I think it makes me personally more inclined to do it. Some people, I think, need to have sort of it scheduled in or they won't do it. Yeah, it's not like you like to kind of be able to choose what feels the most aligned for you in that moment. Mm-hmm. Right, and it also, I think, just equally as important is having giving yourself the option that if you just need to come home and lie down totally that that's totally great and not something to be giving yourself a hard time about yeah absolutely and that not everything has to be physical sometimes I just need a night where I eat a really delicious dish of pasta and watch a movie Mm -hmm. and don't take any phone calls and don't communicate with anyone and yeah. just totally veg out. And I always pick a movie where I know there's going to be a happy ending. Yeah. There's not going to be any. <laughs> My friends joke that I watch like teen romance 
<laughs> movies <laughs> because I do notice that they're always going to be sort of a happy ending so I understand that I'm very sensitive to to any violence or anything like that so I also tend to try to choose things that are happy or just sort of not too intense mm -hmm. yep I also think it since I started doing trauma work, I have a lot less interest in that. I hear enough about that from my clients to yeah. necessarily watch a drama where something's going to be happening to someone. And I do, there is, I have to really watch that. You can get sort of vicarious, vicarious dramatization. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't had any symptoms like that recently, but when I first started practicing, I made the mistake of bringing a child's file home. Oh, so yeah. way at the start of my work and thought, oh, I'll just quickly review this before I go to bed. Oof. And I ended up waking up with facing the wrong direction, head down into oh my, my bed and was stuck. I couldn't sit up. Oh, because yeah. I will never again do that. So you learn from your experiences, boundaries, I won't yeah. bring a file home. Yeah. After that, it, now if I have work to do or I feel like I have to do something at the end of the day, I just stay at work. And then when I leave, I leave. And I do a lot of that with my colleagues, really setting boundaries with them so that they can also have their own boundaries. Mm, yeah. We don't have to have a conversation about a student at eight o'clock at night. We can have it the next morning. There's no need to be stressing about that before. You need to have that separation. And I have quite a commute, which I used to see sort of as a negative, but now I see it really as my time to process anything I need to process. And then when I get home, I settle into home. And I've also gotten into listening to books on tape during that time or talking to a friend. Again, a list of options. Processing the day, talk to a friend, listen to something or just listen to the radio and sing in the car, do a little car dancing. <laughs> yeah. But just having that time before I get home. Yeah. Some time it sounds like to, to switch modes, right. And to like leave right. what you need to leave. Right. Yeah. I think over time you learn that you are a therapist and yes, you help people, but also there's only so much you can do. It's really mm -hmm. individuals who you're working with that are going to do the work and or not do the work. Yeah. And that me stressing about it at home doesn't actually help anyone and, and hurts me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first thing too, right? Like taking care of yourself so that you can then show up for others. Yeah, that was one of the best things I learned in grad school actually, was to really notice if you feel exhausted in a session, mm -hmm. probably you're working too hard mm. because maybe the other person isn't doing any work. So you're mm -hmm. trying to, which is definitely my, a tendency when you first start out and I definitely did it is just trying to think of every possible thing in one session to help the person <laughs> which is just very exhausting instead of just being there with the person being present with the person 
and letting them really think about what they're talking about when they leave and then maybe the next time they'll have more to give or being honest i'm honest with people a lot if you don't feel like now's the time to do the work let's not do the work right now yeah or if i'm not the right match for you that's also totally fine and i want people to tell me that has that happened to you and yes times where you've either decided you can't work with someone or they it just doesn't seem like a fit or specifically you were talking about how maybe it's just not the time isn't right for them for sure i definitely have had people that well people tell me that in a couple of ways one is they just don't come to the session <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so that's either i'm not a good fit or it's not a good time I did in the past have someone call one time and say that they, I'd encouraged them to, they were having some substance issues and I had encouraged them to get treatment for that. Mm -hmm. And they called and told the administrative assistant that they didn't want to do that right now. They wanted to continue drinking. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought that was really great actually because I believe that when they decide that they do want to do the work, mm -hmm. when they do want to get some treatment, that they will be more open to it then because they had that ownership of really saying that they weren't in a place. Mm -hmm. To acknowledge that I think is huge. Yeah. And just to say, it's not for me right now. And, and that, speaks, that speaks to a lot of things, right? because drinking is numbing and for whatever reason, that was too scary. The thought of stopping that in order to get the things that they wanted by coming to treatment. So yeah. I think that that's, that's huge. And other times I encourage, I've encouraged people to be sort of done Mm, okay. Yeah. Termination can be a really hard thing. Like, mm. what if I stop coming to work with you and something happens? It's sort of, that's been the approach. And I think that'll probably come up in coaching too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have to remind people that they have the skills and also mm. worst case scenario, you call and you see if you can come in. Yeah. Yeah. But with some people I'll do kind of a three, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, mm -hmm. they don't see me for that long. And then I ask if they're really nervous about being done, did you have an emergency in the five weeks? Uh -huh. <laughs> did you need to call me? Well, no, I use that skill that I've learned to do and it worked. Okay, so it seems like, and maybe you talked to yourself, you talked to yourself when you were having a hard time. You reassured yourself. You reminded yourself that what you were thinking was actually just that, a thought, that the world wasn't going to end, that sort of thing. And yeah, sometimes people need a little bit more time to do that. Yeah, but it sounds like what it's, what it's also doing is empowering them. Right. And it's giving them an actual opportunity to see the empowerment that they do have and that they can show up for themselves when they need to. 
But if they don't have that space to explore that, then they may not fully know that yet. I think a really good therapist is one that is not needed. <laughs> yeah. Right? The, yeah. If you, if the person believes in themselves and they've learned the skills, they don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. And if they see it as they did the work, right. then really that's, that's the goal. I don't want anyone to think that I did the, I didn't do the work. Yeah. I was there. I'm, I'm so honored that people will take that journey with me yeah. through things that maybe they've never talked to anyone about before, that yeah. they feel great shame about, guilt about, whatever. Mm-hmm. But their actual work is their own. And I, I, I really see the parallel with your work as a coach in that too. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Cause coaching, you could encourage them every day, but if they don't believe that they are going to do whatever it is you're helping to coach them to do, it's not going to happen. Like you were saying, as, as a therapist, similarly as a coach, like I'm not there to give any answers. I'm not there to give any advice. I'm not there to tell you anything. I'm just there. I'm just there to remind you of what you already have, what you already know and what you can already do. And it's, it's already, it's still, it's already there. And then it's just a matter of me asking the right questions for you to find the information that you already have. Right. A lot of my work with trauma, and I would think this would happen with, with chronic illness as well. So many people have not believed the symptoms of my clients or have not believed that their behavior or their attitudes or their life experiences were real. And so often they don't trust themselves and there's this real disconnect between their body and their, and their mind. So their body is this thing that's not doing what they want it to do in some ways. And also there may be a trauma related to the body, but there may not be. And then people have doubted them. So I might get someone, I might be working with someone who's gone to multiple therapists who kind of downplayed their trauma because trauma is not necessarily some huge thing. It's all in how we, we experience something. So my experience of something, the person next to me might have the same experience and they might, that might go with them into the future. And for me, it might sort of last for 30 days, which can be kind of an acute phase. And then mm-hmm. I move on with my life and I don't think, even think about it again. And I don't have any internal, I'm not holding it, nothing. Mm-hmm. But the person next to me may feel really traumatized by it. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of what I help people do is really get back to listening to themselves and their own bodies because they, people have doubted what they're saying. And I would think this would be the same with a chronic illness, especially in the diagnostic phase. And sometimes I do, I work with people who also have some kind of illness and maybe weren't believed like, oh, this is psychosomatic. You need to see a therapist. 
And if someone sent to me in that situation, I still want them to explore the physical. I mean, I had a client who was having major heart issues, like pains and felt like they were having a stroke or a seizure, you know, and they were just sort of sent to me for treatment. I don't want to treat someone for a panic disorder if they also have a heart issue going on. So I'm happy to treat them and help them to make it, you know, if they have a panic attack, how to deal with it. So I have sort of specific things I might teach them educationally around that. And then we might work on it. But I also, at the same time, want them to go to a doctor who listens to what they have to say and really gives them a like a thorough workup for the medical side. And so what I do a lot is helping people to be more intuitive about themselves because they've been taught to doubt what they feel, what they think, what their body is doing. Mm -hmm. So if someone comes to me and they're having chronic pain and they're also depressed, doesn't mean they're not having chronic pain. The chronic pain is real. Mm -hmm. It may be linked to the depression, yeah. but it's sort of working through that and going, listen to what your body's saying, but also let's think about what, how you can respond. Like we're talking about that self-care. How can you then respond to your body when it's, when it's talking to you, when it's giving you a message? And the answer might not always be rest. Sometimes we have to go, okay, body, you're not feeling great today. And I can still go and do this thing that I need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also some other day it might be, I have to rest today. Yeah. And just to get back into that pattern of listening, because there's so much ignoring that goes on to quote unquote function in society because society's kind of you have to go 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 and do all these things and meet all these needs and mm -hmm. often people feel like they have to do everything like you were saying earlier about boundaries if you have a plan with a friend and you're not feeling it you of course can say i feel really not great today and i need to reschedule but a lot of the people I work with feel like they can't do that mm -hmm. because of their trauma. They feel yeah. like they can't because maybe the person won't want to be their friend anymore mm -hmm. or will judge them or think that they're faking. And so it's a lot of that kind of sitting with the physical experience and then deciding how to go forward with it. Just acknowledging, even just acknowledging it or acknowledging that your body is doing things because there is sort of the opposite is just like having no sense of physical body. Yeah. People will sit with me and I ask them if they can feel their feet on the floor and they cannot. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. So I just think when you and I have talked in the past about, I just think there's so many parallels and so much connection between the chronic medical situation and trauma and as you said trauma as part of that as well or a separate entity yeah it's very related um and all of that is very alive in the chronic illness community i mean even when you were talking like even when you were just talking about that uh you know clients who have been ignored or not heard or not believed. 
I mean, I viscerally could feel that in my body. When you were saying it, it was like my whole body changed because I've been there so many times. Um, I mean, it took me 14 years to get a diagnosis. And most of that time I was told nothing was wrong with me. I was making it up. I was crazy. I mean, all kinds of things I've heard it. And that's most of the people that I know, particularly in the world of Lyme disease and diseases like ME, um, chronic fatigue, everyone's heard it, everyone's gone through it. And it creates, that in itself creates so much trauma, let alone what the people are going through just from the trauma of having illness, but then being ushered in the world in that way is um, so demoralizing. And it does take an incredible amount of work to, it takes an incredible amount of courage to decide that you're going to make the choice to try to come back into your body. And then it takes a lot of work to actually make it happen. And it's totally worth all of the work because it, it really does help connect you back to being present and being grounded and like being an entity that lives on planet earth, but it's not easy and it doesn't, it's generally a very unsafe feeling to get there. So you have to do, often people need to like really work on that sense of safety and um, safety and then trusting that it's, trusting that it's safe to, to live in their bodies again and, and even just trusting their bodies in general. So it can be, I mean, it's different for, the experience is different for everyone and how, how or when that happens. It can be really hard. And for me, the, the most important piece for me has been finding healers that I trust and that do listen and that do believe that my experiences are, are real and valid. And that is a hundred percent what has like allowed me to be able to even explore that is, is just having that safety net. I talked speaking of nets, that safety net of someone who's, who looks at you and says, I, I see everything you're going through and it looks really weird. What I've found with people who have done work with therapists and come to me because it wasn't helpful is the exact same thing you're talking about. They, they're with a provider, a therapist who said, who's sort of the old feeling about how you treat trauma is like, you just like talk about it and then you're better yeah (laughs) (laughs) and 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 that can the experience of then going to a therapist becomes its own trauma because they feel like they were forced to talk about something too soon the safe space wasn't created before the trauma was discussed and I noticed this particularly with couples I work with so talk about a challenge you have two people who have their own traumas and, and they're in a relationship and then you're trying to help them to be more cohesive, better communicating with each other. And one of the real things I notice I teach a lot 
when I do more like psychoeducation is a really big part of it, of therapy is really talking about trauma itself and how it's triggered and how it's experienced by different people and slowing people down. Cause usually one person in the couple is like, we're at therapy, let's go. Let's start talking and get into it. And the other person, you can just see them, their body immediately. Mm-hmm. Like one person is like, I have to tell you everything right now. Mm-hmm. And I have to really go look at your part. Do you see your partner right now? Mm-hmm. Do they look comfortable mm-hmm. and ready to talk about this? Yes, there'll be moments of it being hard and that sessions will be challenging, but we don't just go, we don't just jump off the cliff with, without looking over the side. It's a gradual process of feeling safe, the, the three of us, that we can handle what anything that comes up. Mm-hmm. And so often I'll give them a code word or something so oh, that yeah. either of them can say that it's uncomfortable and it's an understanding that we're not gonna go there until they're ready. And I say that specifically for me because I don't know what you're, so one person could want to talk about something and it's very surface level and another person it feels very powerful and re-traumatizing, right? So if, yeah. if individuals know that they can stop me and just say, I'm not ready to talk about that, it, it can really help the whole process. But I, I hear what you're saying really about the, the safety piece because that's so important in therapy as well. And it does take time. And also if people have had hard experiences with past therapists, of course, coming to me it feels scary and intimidating. I mean, I always tell my clients, when I, as a therapist, go to therapy, I'm scared to go to therapy and find a new therapist and tell them stuff and I'm not sure about it. Yeah. So obviously I'm on board with therapy. I do this for work, but I'm, it's still, for me, it's still intimidating. So of course it's intimidating, especially if they've had an experience that didn't go well. That's one of my first questions. Yeah. If you go to therapy, was it a positive experience? Mm-hmm. If it was, what did that therapist do? Oh, yeah that made you feel safe, that made you feel heard. You know, if someone's already met with someone a lot and they did cognitive behavioral therapy and the person really resonated with that, great. That's where we'll start because that's comfortable. I mean, throughout this whole thing, we've talked about being present. And I think that being present with nature, right, is connecting to the world around us. We get so caught up in moving, 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 doing, 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 surviving, surviving, surviving. Yeah. That, that getting back into nature or just noticing, not just noticing, but having a moment of gratitude, but also not just gratitude. I really like the idea of, because gratitude sometimes feels I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday or the day before who, who'd recently lost her mom and her mom has been, you know, the rock in her life. She's had some real life challenges and was in a coma for a while and woke up. Her mom was there. So, you know, her whole life, her mom's been there and now her mom's not there. And she was talking about how her life has been pretty good and she should just be grateful for that. 
I think great gratitude sometimes comes with this element of guilt. Like I can't, I shouldn't be feeling sad or in pain because I've had all these opportunities or privileges, but I don't see it that way. I see it as you can be grateful for the things you've had, but also you have every right to be feeling your pain. Oh, 100%. Yeah, they, they coexist. And also that instead of gratitude, sort of taking it one level further, I think with nature is finding things that really sort of take your breath away, noticing how amazing something is. I, th- mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think we talked about this before. When the pandemic started, I was fairly isolated in a house and trying to figure out how to see my relatives and I did a 14 day quarantine and then was seeing my clients on the computer and basically not seeing anyone kind of just solo. And I kept thinking, well, this, I should feel safe and I should feel secure and I should feel, you know, and then I realized one day I just lay on the floor and that became kind of my thing. When I was just overwhelmed, I would just lie on the floor and remind myself that I was safe and that I was okay. And then I started also doing it in nature and just noticing what was going by in the yard. And, and I think that can be really powerful just to come, just stop totally. Whether you lie on the floor, whether you just are present with a song, with music, like whatever really resonates with you, but just being able to give yourself that time and space. I found that lying on the floor was the most, I was doing yoga, I was doing all the things. But once I just lay there, I felt much better. And there's really something to be said to that. Yeah, well, you talk about this shift from doing to being and being is like a comfortable, safe space where you're able to be more present and you're not thinking about what needs to happen next or what has happened or or what you're doing. And I think it's sort of what you alluded to earlier too with socially, we're sort of bound to these contracts sometimes of doing a lot of things, or we feel that we are bound to these certain contracts of doing, doing, doing. But ultimately we're not, that's sort of like a learned behavior. You can always come back to being Yeah, I also think what the being does, and it sounds like you were specifically talking about earthing too, like literally connecting to the earth, like laying on the earth and feeling that vibration and rhythmic resonance, which is walking barefoot on the ground. Yeah, which is very healing. And I think that that also helps in that sense of being because you're also like connecting back to yourself as a human being who is literally a human being on this planet you're you're here to like be a human being not to be a human being doing things well and there's so much guilt and pain that comes from thinking you need to do some be doing something when really what you need to do for yourself is whatever you need to do for yourself yeah when you say that too I, i think of like this difference of sort of what we were talking about earlier, where you're like working a job that you don't like versus working a job that's fulfilling for you. There's definitely more of a sense of 
being when you're experiencing that and you're because you're actually intuitively aligned to your soul purpose versus when you're doing something out of uh, pressure or need or guilt or like the sense of that you have to do something versus being yourself and then letting the the world sort of align with what that means like what what happens in your world when you're just being who you are and that's so hard to do just Mm -hmm. be yourself in this world yeah exactly i think it's huge what was that like for you this experience yeah i thought it was really fun (laughs) thank you for having me as your guest yes thank you for coming on it's interesting because it really is just being it's just being your authentic self and having a chat yeah i thought i'd share that the way your microphone is right now it looks like bigger than your head (laughs) (laughs) it's awesome it's like wow she really takes this microphone very seriously she's got this giant i love this microphone